You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. I want to tell you that uh, we did a very moving interview with Daniel Ellsberg, which we will play uh, tomorrow on the show. And the show will be devoted uh, again to Julian Assange. Coming up uh, is Greg Palace. We're going to be talking about Assange and Brexit. Take a short break. We will be back. Delighted to welcome back Greg Palace. Usually, Greg and I uh, uh, do our election crimes bulletin. Greg is a master at uh, holding the powers that be accountable and trying to protect the vote. Uh, but he also reports for the BBC and other uh, international organizations, and he's been watching Brexit. But before we jump into that, um, Greg Palace, and welcome, uh, we know that you have a few things you want to share about uh, what happened today with Assange being dragged out. Well, a couple things. If they're going to arrest uh, Julian Assange, they have to arrest me because I used I used WikiLeaks documents from Assange, uh, passed uh, from Manning to Assange. In fact, uh, you should arrest me. You should arrest uh, the, my colleagues at The Guardian and great editor Alan Rusbridger. You should certainly arrest uh, the, uh, the, uh, oh, I wouldn't call them reporters, but the repeaters at the New York Times who took the information from Manning and from Assange, collected a bunch of awards, and then applauded their imprisonment. You know, um, uh, you know, the, the, I could got to tell you, and I want to repeat this for anyone listening, if you give something Greg Palast, uh, I will protect you as a source, uh, no matter what. And, uh, you know, I'd rather go to prison than have you go to prison. Uh, the, uh, this is a, this is a very serious issue. Julian Assange, I don't care, you know, there's this debate, is he really a journalist? Number one, yeah, the guy who, who brings you the inside documents and reveals them, that is journalism, okay? If he, he wasn't taking inside documents to the State Department selling them to the Russians, that's treason. He is making them public. And in fact, uh, the, um, and the great Judge Sporkin, who was on the Dane on one of the Ellsberg cases, who was in fact himself um, chief counsel for the CIA, says we do not have in the United States um, a, an official secrets act, and he he is the guy who let Ellsberg go. He said because we don't have a, an official secrets act. This guy, when you take information like Daniel Ellsberg did with the Pentagon Papers, like Assange did with the Manning documents from inside the State Department for the public interest to tell us the truth. That's not against the law in the United States. But now suddenly it is under Barack Obama and now under um, Agent Orange, Mr. Trump. Um, you know, I used, if you go to gregpalace.com, you'll see a story I wrote about the Deepwater Horizon, which we discussed, Dennis, years ago. By the way, next year will be the 10th anniversary. It was because of Manning that we found out, and Assange, that we found out that 17 months before the Deepwater Horizon exploded, there was an identical blowout on another British petroleum oil rig doing the same crappy uh, nitrogen mix cement job on deep in deep water drilling in the Caspian Sea. They had a similar blowout, exact, you know, identical actually, 
17 months earlier, the State Department covered it up. Condi Rice uh, took a message from her old bosses at Chevron, sent the message to the Caspian nation of Azerbaijan, and they covered up the blowout. And they didn't tell the Interior Department, which had said it's dangerous for the deep water horizon to be drilling out there in that area of the Gulf, 5,000 feet deep using their methods. The, the, the United States Interior Department wanted to stop that if they had known about the Caspian blowout. We'd have never had the Deepwater Horizon blowout, killing 11, burning 11 men alive, and destroying 1,000 miles of our coastline. Chelsea Manning's and Julian Assange's release could have saved those lives if it was simply released and we'd found the material earlier. I use that material. It's, it, this is life-saving material. This is amazing journalism. And for this amazing journalism, you shouldn't be putting leg irons. This is, this is horrific. I understand the British do that because they have Official Secrets Act, but then to now, it's one of the reasons why we left the mother country. They don't have a First Amendment. We do. Of course, maybe they could use ours because we're not using it. You know, Greg, I I keep thinking about Randy Credico going to the uh, yeah. the the uh, journalists uh, whatever in Washington D.C. What the hell do they call that? Uh, yeah, the uh, right the, uh, the the annual uh, um, little joke fest that they have. And at one point, Washington Correspondence Center. Yes. At one point, Randy gets up on a chair and starts yelling, well, what about Julian Assange here? Is anybody... So he gets beaten and dragged out, and 150 reporters witness it and don't report it. I can't get over that. Because American... You said reporters. They aren't reporters. They're repeaters. They repeat the official State Department line. Well, you know, we just discussed, you know, we're talking about Venezuela, how during the coup d'etat in 2002, which... uh, uh, this is, by the way, this is the anniversary of it as we speak now. During that coup d'etat, the U.S. State Department said that Chavez, Hugo Chavez had resigned because he knew how unpopular he was. The same lines that they're using on Maduro now. He was so incompetent and popular, uh, he resigned. Yeah, uh, sounds fact, like I, him. I re- <laughs> yeah, and so, and so what happened was they were repeating what they heard from the State Department. And I found out that, that Chavez, I was in London working with The Guardian, found out that Chavez was, uh, in, had been kidnapped. And so I asked the, uh, I literally asked the Times correspondent, I thought, well, maybe I got this wrong. I said, where'd you get this information? He said, well, I got it from the U.S. State Department. And, and he said it like with this, like, my God, of course, I got it from sure. the most important source. <laughs> and I got to tell you, if I went back to The Guardian or BBC and said, oh, I got it from the U.S. State Department, I'd be fired on the spot. They said, that's not reporting, that's repeating. You don't do that. But see, this is the problem, and this is why you don't have American newsmen, supposedly, up in arms about the arrest of one of the most extraordinary journalists of our times. You know, you don't have to like Julian Assange's personality or talk about his personal failings. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's not the issue. That's not the issue. The issue is that he was providing an extraordinary news service, better than the service you're going to get from the Associated Press, you know, the propaganda filth that you get through that pipeline, okay? And, and, you know, the news services like the AP and like the New York Times news service, which were peddling the Russia, Russia, Russia con, that's 
perfectly fine. But a guy who gives us the truth, that's the crime. That's a crime. That, and that is ill-making to me. And it is particularly ill-making because you do have some of these same journalists. i got to tell you, if it weren't for the Guardian and their Spiegel... You know, Greg, I have to jump in here because I, I, yeah. I, you know, I used to love The mm -hmm. Guardian. Uh, but mm -hmm. The Guardian joined the rest of them. In this group thing with a with a couple of piece, hit pieces on Julian that were unprovable, that were not sourced, and I was profoundly uh, disappointed. I, I don't know, maybe they got uh, the fear of uh, the U.S. government uh, going up their spine, but I, I just need to add that because uh, there was a big problem, and everybody's quoting the story about how, uh, what's-his-face, um, Roger Stone uh, met with Julian Assange. Remember, that made it into the freaking Guardian. Well, and, 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 I, and I want to tell you, Yes, that was sickening and disappointing. And um, please note that the great Alan Rusbridger, who had the courage to take the WikiLeaks documents and the Snowden documents and bring them to the world, that Rusbridger was bounced from the Guardian, and then things Thank kind you. of fell yes. a bit apart. Okay, so I have to say there's there's the there's Rusbridger Guardian, uh, who brought you WikiLeaks and uh, brought you Snowden. And then there's the current Guardian, and I, you know, which has its good, you know, compared to yes, the New York that's Times, that's the problem. I mean, compared like to what? Yeah. Com <laughs> anyway, <laughs> look, it's just like with me, you know, like people say, oh, you, you know, like you know, BBC reporters will tell me, oh, you talk about BBC like it's the Garden of Eden. I said, no, but I live in America with a garden in a garden of snakes, journalistically, oh. and it, like I say, it's it's my problem here is that we. I'm just ashamed that we don't have reporters. Literally, they should be going on strike, or they should be, the, the paper should be out there, out there in front saying, this is criminal to do this to a newsman. No matter what you think of him personally, no matter what you think of the stories, that, that has nothing to do with it. That has nothing to do with it. You know, and, and, you know, Manning is obviously the one who is extraordinarily courageous because she, you know, was in solitary confinement. She really put her whole life on the line. And uh, I don't, you know, let's not forget someone who's also in prison at this moment for yeah. being the truth teller. Yeah. But I want to, I did want to bring this up because reporters like me rely and have relied and use the WikiLeaks documents that Assange made public. And I think it's any reporter like me, and, and I see these reporters who use the material. I remember when uh, the Times said, well, Manning's sentence was just too severe. That's their source. How dare they? And, and I can't tell you how upsetting this is to me that, I, that we don't have reporters in the streets are even better at their typewriter saying, we will write no other story except the Julian Assange story right now. That's it. Because this is, goes to the heart of our ability to report. And if any reporter thinks, oh, that's a special case, when they come for you, you're the next special case.
Yes, it is. That's uh, no joke. That's no joke. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Greg, wanted to talk with you a little bit about the Brexit exit. Um, this yeah. is another thing we can thank uh, a lot of misreporting uh, for confusing a story uh, that isn't really as it seems. You want to no, talk about I mean, Brexit? It is. I got to tell you, it's been re misreported in England, and I can't say that The Guardian has covered themselves with glory on this either. But especially when you look at the good and the great in the U.S., you will not find one single columnist, not one single reporter in the United States who will explain what Brexit is and why and, and stand up for the democratic principles of Brexit people voted for. That is, they voted to get out... England voted to get out of the European Union. And understand what this is really about. I lived there for years, and I followed the creation as a reporter, as an investigative reporter, followed the creation of this monstrosity of globalization called the European Union. And it stuns me that even on the progressive side, that those who were in Seattle in 1999 and said no to the WTO, no to corporate control of the international economy, would now suddenly take the WTO on steroids, the European Union, and say how, how, what a terrible thing it is that these ignorant working class people of Britain said enough to the free trade monster. I mean, it is NAFTA on, you know, like times 50. And this is the problem with the elites, okay? The Democrat, I, you know, like this began for me, by the way, when I got a series of documents, the minutes of 14 meetings between the uh, Lord uh, Britain, uh, who was the uh, uh, trade minister for the European Union, uh, the uh, International Chairman of Goldman Sachs, Peter Sutherland, who was also, by the way, uh, head of the WTO, the head of uh, the International Banking Group of, at UBS, the United Bank of Switzerland, basically all the banking chiefs and top international government operatives, including in the EU, had 14 secret meetings. They called themselves the Invisibles. And later when they're outed, they, they, they uh, tarred up the name to Liberalization on Trade and Services Group. But the Invisibles were literally writing the rules of the European Union to smash unions, to stop any regulation of industry, for example. Um, and, we, and we just see it in the last few weeks. Uh, Germany was about to vote to eliminate that poison, which the city of San Francisco has eliminated, called Roundup by Monsanto, the Monsanto poison, which has been causing cancer around this planet for decades. And the European Union was about to uh, ban Monsanto's Roundup, but then Germany changed its crucial vote uh, weeks after Bayer, the German, the giant German chemical company, bought Monsanto. This is about corporate control and people in England voting to get rid of their shackles and to leave. And the victims of free trade, the victims of free trade, the, we've seen the absolute complete destruction of the British auto industry, for example. Um, that those victims have said enough. 
We're not going to be victims anymore. And instead, they're played as ignoramuses. They're played as racists. And yeah, are there racists in there? Sure. Yeah, I mean, this is what happens, when, just like with Donald Trump. I was in Michigan and I was in Ohio in 2016. I saw UAW workers who had Bernie Sanders bumper stickers on their car next to the Trump bumper stickers because they voted for Sanders in the primary. They got shafted by the Democratic Party, and then they voted for Trump. What? Why? Number one issue was NAFTA. Free trade wasn't free to them. The Delphi Auto Parts plant shut down in Warren, Ohio. And Trump said, I will end NAFTA day one in office, and I'll bring back the jobs to Warren, Ohio. Now, i got to tell you, Trump was lying, but at least he was listening. Whereas you had this woman, Hillary Clinton, who, who basically said, you know, shut the F up, the economy's great, and NAFTA is wonderful. And so the elites of the Democratic and Republican parties abandoned the working class, so they ran to a right-wing racist who was at least giving them the economic populist line that they were looking for. And the same is happening in Europe. And, it, and Brexit, understand, Dennis, the desire to get the hell out of the European Union by the working class is not just in Britain. It's all over Europe. It's only, it's only because only Britain, only Britain alone has had a vote. If you had a vote anywhere else, almost every country would pull out of the European Union. The, work, the workers, the working class of Europe is getting demolished, demolished by the European Union free trade regime, the deregulatory regime. These are, it was the deregulation imposed on the banks by the European Union, required by any state within the European Union, that deregulation was just, did just what it did in the U.S. Collapse of the housing markets, impoverishment, destruction of people's pension, which they're still feeling, and they're voting against it. They're saying, we're the victims. We've had it. We're out. In Italy, and I'll, then I'll end on this, in Italy, the people voted in the majority for the five-star movement, which is a left-wing populist movement. And the um, uh, the president the uh, the prime minister said that the president who was elected could not serve because he was picking an economics minister who said that Italy should get out of the European uh, uh, get out of the euro, and of course that means get out of the European Union. And so they even when the people voted, the people's vote was vetoed. So now in England, they're trying to veto the people's vote through these machinations by a right-wing Tory, vicious Tory government, which is Eurocentric. And unfortunately, we see this in the European Labour Party. When I wrote my stories about the basic, the secret dictator, corporate dictatorship called the European Union in The Guardian, my local MP, a great anti-globalization crusader, named Jeremy Corbyn, congratulated me again and again. Then he became head of the Labor Party and completely flipped around and now is the spokesman for the invisibles, the spokesman for the corporate power saying we have to stay um, shackled in the European Union. There's no one speaking for the working class. There you go. 
no one speaking for the working class. Well, uh, that is certainly not a new revelation, but what is really troubling in watching this, it, one can't help but think that the powers that be are not going to quit until they get their way. When do the working, the workers of this world ever really prevail? Well, every once in a while, you know, uh, but uh, it is not an easy row. And this seems like we, we don't like that vote. So, you know, we got a thousand ways, uh, a thousand cuts to stop it. Well, in fact, we see that, look, you can't really separate um, Theresa May and, uh, and, um, Angela Merkel's successor in Germany and Donald Trump picking the president of Venezuela, regardless of what their voters want, and basically crushing the voters' will in Italy and in Britain to say enough of the European Union. And so you can't, you can't, these, you have to understand the elites are allergic to democracy. They fear democracy and they'll do anything to undermine it and destroy it. And including, like I say, in the U.S., you look at the U.S. punditry. Can you name me one single columnist in the United States in, in any mainstream paper which has said anything but that Brexit is the, the uh, creation of racists and ignoramuses that don't know anything about economics? Now, I'm an economist, and I can tell you right now that the average European worker has been shafted completely by the, by the rules of the European Union. And, um, and this is the real issue, and they want to turn it into something where it's just a bunch of people who are racist. No, I'm sorry. Um, that, that's the convenient get-out. Uh, they won't, you know, and, and in fact, you hear silly arguments like from people in Britain, like, we're part of Europe, as if Britain is going to, uh, under uh, the European Union, if they leave the European Union, they're going to, you know, uh, snap off the, the channel tunnel and Britain will float north until it hits Iceland. Um, you know, Switzerland has, uh, has not been part of the European Union, nor for that matter, the United States has not been part of the European Union. Somehow we've all survived. Um, without uh, the, the secret meetings of the corporations telling us what the rules of trade will be, what poisons you will have to ingest, what cancers you will have to suffer. And uh, as you saw, the, the cruelty of the European Union, for example, in Greece, where the people tried to vote to free themselves of the European Union and the euro after uh, an economic regime was was imposed on the Greeks, where you had you know school teachers hunting through garbage cans to eat. Um, this is the European Union, and this is the you know it's the corporate nirvana. And when there's a revolt by its victims, they have to be denigrated as ignoramuses and racists. And um, you know it, it's just uh, it, it's sickening. And again. It's a press which is not producing facts, but is basically throwing mud at anyone who raises the, the issue of democracy. We have 
been speaking with Greg Palast. Greg Palast is uh, the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, uh, now a featured documentary. He does a regular show with us. It's the Election Crimes Bulletin. Greg is on the front lines of that battle fighting for your vote. Uh, and uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, Greg, thanks for joining us again on Flashpoints. You can go to gregpalast.com if you want more uh, about what Greg is up to. I'm Dennis Bernstein. You are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. I do want to direct you uh, to tomorrow's special on Julian Assange with a very moving interview we did uh, with Daniel Ellsberg. You do not want to miss that. Uh, he has a lot to say about the, the role of a whistleblower and what it means to to have that undermined by uh, illegal, out-of-control U.S. national security behavior complemented by uh, national security agencies around the world. So stay tuned. we got a lot more for you. I'm Dennis Bernstein, and we're out of here. wraps it up for another edition of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Our roving producer and producer of Flashpoints in Espanol is Miguel Gavilan Molina. Our technical director is Mike Biggs. For more information about the show, to listen to or download archived episodes, log on to flashpoints.net or visit our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com forward slash flashpoints. For questions or comments about Flashpoints, you can contact Dennis at dennisjbernstein at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>